Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Oh, we love New York and its growing tech industry. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we talk with Brad Svarluga, co-founder and general partner of Primary Venture Capital, about his firm's geographic focus in investing, the traits and patterns he looks for in founders, and his outlook on the future of tech in New York City. We are joined by Brad Svarluga. He is co-founder and general partner at Primary Venture Partners. Brad started his venture investing career just before the dot-com bubble burst in the late 90s. He learned a lot of lessons, and we'll get into all of that from that time, as well as the 2008 financial crisis. And all that contributed to the mission behind his current firm, which is to exclusively invest in New York area startups. So Brad, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here with us on Cornell Tech at Bloomberg. You join, you're joining us from the Berkshires on the East Coast. I always like to start off these conversations by getting a sense of your background and where you come from. And growing up, you've said that you were interested in math, you're interested in art and toyed with the idea of being an architect, uh, but you didn't end up doing that. So how did you go from this mindset of perhaps being an architect to entering business first as a consultant and then as a, a venture, venture capital investor? Um, well, first, thanks for having me. It's it's fun to be here and and fun to do something with the Cornell Tech community. Um, we're huge fans of of what Cornell is contributing to the ecosystem uh, in New York City. So, you know, how did I get here? Uh, yeah, I was as a as a kid, I was really good at two things: math and art. And architecture seemed a a logical place to find an intersection for those. Um, but I ended up going to a liberal arts College Williams, uh, pretty close to where I'm hiding out from the pandemic here in the Berkshires. And um, they didn't have an engineering program, which was the logical place to get started. And um, so I actually spent some time as a as a chemistry major um, and a studio art major. Um, and then I worked in a chemistry lab for a, for a summer and realized that that was very isolated, uh, kind of lonely work. And I'm a pretty social being and uh, just decided that that was not going to be the life for me and ultimately ended up as a as an economics major and uh, kind of expected that I would go to grad school and, and maybe end up in public policy or something. But I had a, a visiting professor my junior year um, who was a, a very kind of real world practitioner of um, corporate strategy stuff in addition to being a PhD in economics and just a amazingly brilliant guy and he taught uh, what was probably the most practical real world grounded course in the williams economics department uh, and we actually did a bunch of harvard business school case studies as par part of that um, and that just like instantly grabbed my uh, attention and i got really excited about that and, and so quickly changed plans to from you know going to work in dc and policy that summer as an intern to getting a job at a at a big management consulting firm um and sort of that launched me out into the uh into the business world after i graduated and then i was i i loved that work but i was 
was uh, working for, you know, enormous clients, people like Merck and Coca-Cola, and you're just, you're just miles away from where the rubber meets the road and kind of the action is on that stuff in those jobs, particularly when you're, you know, 24 years old or something. And so I knew it wasn't for me forever. Um, and, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I, I had assumed I was going to go to business school. And then, you know, this is the late nineties and the, the peak peak of the first internet bubble. And uh, a friend of mine was running a tiny little venture firm uh, of the sort that, you know, probably never should have existed. Um, but it was 1999 and, and they were doing great and he needed somebody to help him and asked me if I wanted to come and join him. And I, and I thought, you know, that, that might be kind of the perfect middle ground between going all in and an operating role, which didn't kind of get me excited, but it maintained the, the variety and the intellectual challenge and the kind of ADD-ness that, that being a consultant working on multiple clients at a time did. Um, while also putting me much closer to where the rubber was meeting the road. Right. And I, I remember the first, like the first meeting of any substance I had with a portfolio company walking out of this room after like 90 minutes and realizing that that company was going to start doing things very differently the next day because of the discussion that a group of people had had. And that just never had happened at a Coca-Cola. And that from there it was clear that that's what I wanted to do. Right, you could be immediately impactful in a way that being a management consultant at a big firm um, couldn't be because it would totally. have to go through all these layers of bureaucracy and yeah. a lot of like different groups, um, focus groups looking into every proposal that was made. You mentioned that this was in the late 90s. So what kind of assumptions did you make about venture capital as a result of that period, that environment that you're in? Well, I got, it was late 1999. Um, and so as I generally say, I, I got into the business about 15 minutes before the bubble burst. So not able to actually reap any of the rewards of that era. Had I been in the business a few years longer, uh, it would have been certainly more lucrative at the time. Um, but I think I took a couple things away. I came into it. I didn't come into it with, with a ton of expectations, but but for like the first six months before the bubble actually did burst, it just seemed pretty easy um, and, and sort of illogically easy. But I was 26 and, um, you know. What did you know, right? Yeah, what did I know? And everybody around me was like, you know, I remember the, the, my, my partner at the time, I remember sort of shouting across the hall to each other from this office that we were in as some company that, you know, he had backed, had been sold to a public company and we were just watching and it was an all stock deal. And so the firm had stock in this, this newly public company that never should have been public by any logical today standards. And we were just shouting the share price back and forth across the hall as somebody would go and hit refresh and see it had gone up like another 5% and another 5% and another 5%. Um, I mean, it was, it was wild and something I'd never seen again until like, we're starting to see some echoes of that these days. Yes, yes, and we'll get to that shortly. So, of course, it didn't last. Um, the 15 minutes went by pretty quickly and everything kind of collapsed. Um, what was it like working through that collapse? And, and you and I had talked about this, how there was the initial collapse in March of 2000 when the NASDAQ peaked and you know the Pets.com, for instance, kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And then 
afterwards, there was also 9-11. What was it like to work through that period where everything was consolidating, the ground shifted under everyone's feet? So what, what I think a lot of people don't remember is that, is that it took as long as it did for the whole 1999 bananas phase to unwind. Um, so there was the massive to drop in the NASDAQ in March of 2000. Um, and that was a huge shock to the system and everybody kind of freaked out and the capital markets seized up. But there was a ton of money, not unlike today, there was a ton of money that had been raised by venture funds in 1998, 1999, early 2000. So there were just billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines. And um, the stock market sort of stabilized. And yeah, there were, you know, pets.com was gone and Webvan was gone and, and whatnot. And by the way, it's interesting, you know, Chewy is effectively pets.com. Instacart is effectively Webvan, two of and them. And they're big successes. They're massive successes. And it was just, it was all too early back then. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of convinced ourselves that we were okay. And so we kept doing deals in, um, through the balance of 2000 and early 2001, and then 9-11 happened. And that was the, you know, it's not just last call anymore. Like everybody's getting kicked out of the bar and, and sent home. Um, and, and then the capital markets really seized up and companies started dying at an incredibly rapid rate. And anything that didn't have a sound business model like and a path to profitability uh, was toast. And so it was just, it was a couple of years of full on triage mode, trying to figure out which companies to salvage, trying to figure out how to get them to cash neutral. Um, and we were a tiny fund and, and we just got wiped out because even the good, even the good companies that we busted our butts to save, um, they all needed to raise more money at some point. And that money that came in in 2002, 2003, 2004 even, it was pretty opportunistic um, and aggressive. And so a lot of things just were fully recapitalized. And, you know, we might have gone from owning 10% of something to owning 1% of something. Mm, right. What do you think was the number one lesson you learned from that time? The single most important lesson you learned from that period that ends up being timeless and will be applicable when things turn in this current cycle? So it's it's interesting because it's a lesson that has been relatively useless over the last few years, but I'm certain it will be useful again. Uh, and it's just cash is, cash is king. And understanding how much cash you have, understanding and controlling your, and being in control of your burn rate Burn rates can be high, but understanding how to dial them back if you need to and what the implications of having to do that will be um, <laughs> and giving yourself plenty of time to raise capital if you're going to need it so you don't do it from a position of distress. Um, when, when times get tough, like they did then, like they did in late 2008, early 2009, um, even the really good companies are subject to the importance of those rules. Um, and today, what's what's totally unique about today is that you've got a whole bunch of people who've been in this business now, either on the operating side or on the, on the venture side, for 
it could be 12 years, 13 mm-hmm. years since anything really bad happened in a, in a macro environment sense. And so you, there's a massive portion of the ecosystem that, that is kind of out of touch with the reality that is inevitably going to come. Yeah, although there are periods where there are seizures or seize ups or hiccups, but they don't seem to last very long before someone, usually the government in the form of the Federal Reserve or the federal government comes in and pumps a lot of money into the system. I want to go from those early days as a venture capital investor to and then before we get to what you do right now, you had this period where you were working at High Peaks Venture Partners. This is a, a fund that you started in 2004 with two other partners. Um, there was a very specific focus that you started off with. And I want to get from you the rise and the fall, meaning what did you intend for that fund to do? And then how did it not work out? Um, yeah, and it, and it. how did it not work out? Um, I mean, it worked out in some ways because it was that from which primary was born in many ways, but, but ultimately the strategy we set out against didn't work out. Um, so High Peaks was affiliated with a, a firm called Village Ventures, which in, um, started in 2000 uh, and had a strategy that as a result of, of what the internet um, and kind of growing towards ubiquitous connectivity was doing uh, and how it changed the world, that it was going to enable people to build great companies, do great work from anywhere um, in the same way, interestingly, that we're now all experiencing because of a pandemic. Um, and so the Village Ventures thesis was that at the time, the wildly disproportionate uh, amount of venture capital and entrepreneurial activity in the country, far more so than today, was focused in two markets, the Bay Area and, and Boston. New York was was nothing, next to nothing at that time. Um, behind Seattle, certainly, and probably behind Austin, Texas at the time. And um, But Village Ventures believed that there were lots of places in the country where you had um, great intellectual capital, usually around university, research universities or large corporate, corporate R&D efforts, um, and a, a robust workforce, young, capable uh, workforce of knowledge workers. And that often what was missing from taking those places and making them much, much more vibrant ecosystems for company creation was the lack of of native capital because really early stage investing um at, you know at the seat what we now call the seed stage it's just really hard to do from across the country or it certainly was hard to do before the tools that you know we're using right now for this virtual interview before those tools existed and um but if you were to go to a market like Rochester, New York, which had the University of Rochester and Rochester Institute of Technology, two of the great engineering uh, schools in the country. It had Kodak, Xerox, both of which were way more relevant and important and successful at the time than they are now. Bausch and Lomb, all of that, like that's a lot of intellectual capital around those three, you know, Fortune 200 companies and two great engineering schools. Um, but if you right-sized a fund focused on that market, it would be too small 
to have a team of talented people that had the kind of connectivity and awareness. And so Village Ventures said, let's, uh, and, the, and the back office functions of a venture fund don't look that different if you're running a $20 million fund or a $500 million fund, your costs are, are kind of the same. So Village Ventures said, let's centralize all the back office activities <clears throat> and support the creation of a bunch of funds around the country and network them together from an intellectual capital and, and networks and resources standpoint and create this sort of collaborative distributed beast. Um, and so High Peaks was born as a fund that within that network was going to tackle the opportunities across upstate New York, which Rochester, which I just described, but you have <clears throat> Cornell and Ithaca. Shout out to Cornell for everyone who's uh, joining us. Yeah, exactly. Um, you have you know, the real the real court or the original Cornell in Ithaca. You have, um, you know, Rensselaer Polytech and other great engineering schools in the country in the Albany capital region. Uh, and then you had IBM's global R&D headquarters, GE's global R&D headquarters and a growing um, center for nanotechnology and microchip design. Um, and in aggregate, that was a, like a ton of, of resources. Now, the problem was it was distributed. It was in a lot of places that were like two or three hours from each other. So the, the flaw in our initial thesis was you can't take IBM's R&D headquarters in, in the Hudson Valley and GE's a little further up the river. And we were pretending to think that they had any connectivity to what was going on at Cornell a few hours away um and there was no like the the labor and talent was not seamlessly moving around that that market it wasn't a market it was a collection of a little ones each of which were truly too small so but we did, did a bunch of deals there and i've you know made money and generated returns as an investor in in rochester in binghamton new york in troy new york in the hudson valley um but it became clear to me pretty quickly that it wasn't going to add up to enough mm. to satisfy kind of my aspirations for myself and my career and and i didn't believe we were going to be able to drive really good returns long term and so i turned down the river because new york new york city as a tech ecosystem was starting to come back to life um and so a couple of years after we started I did my first deal in New York City and started doing effectively all of my work um, in New York City. And <clears throat> as a partnership, we just we were never 100 percent aligned. I think we were aligned on New York City being the right place to go focus. But my partners were um, who were just at a very different life place than me. They were 11 and 21 years older than me they weren't going to move to New York City as a, as their base of operations, their focus area. Um, and so it became pretty clear that we would run the course on that. Mm -hmm. uh, we raised two funds. We did fine, not amazingly, but it put me in the position to develop a track record with a bunch of companies in, in New York City. And, uh, and that was where Primary ultimately was able to come from. Yeah, and more importantly, it convinced you that New York City was this uh, yeah. this pool of talent and capital that 
had not been um, ex not exploited, but had really not been tapped into just quite yet to yeah. the extent that you could see there was opportunity there. So after you left High Peaks, because you guys kind of fundamentally didn't see things the same way, you debated over whether to go to work at another fund or take an operational role within existing companies. What was the deciding factor for you? The, uh, I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about operational roles. Um, I'd actually stepped in in the, in the financial crisis and run day to day one of our portfolio companies for a year and, and scratched that itch and got an incredible experience from that um, and both loved it and learned that I have too much ADD and too much hunger for variety mm -hmm. to, to be all in on that. So it was really <clears throat> my default assumption was I was going to join another firm. And at the time, so we're now in kind of 2012 ish, um, there were a bunch of firms that had been born during the bubble or kind of grown up during that uh, period whose partners, founding partners were starting to kind of want to slow down, or at least they were realizing they needed to start making a, a generational transition. Um, and New York was also getting really interesting. And so I actually became a relatively interesting um, candidate for some, for a bunch of partner searches who were looking for either, you know, somebody with a track record in their 30s to help take a, a firm to the next generation, or and or uh, they wanted to have a presence in New York. Mm -hmm. um, it became clear quickly that I didn't want to be the New York outpost for something that was based in Boston or the Valley. Um, I think you, you kind of got to be at home base if, mm -hmm. if you're going to be successful. Um, and so I looked at some firms in both Boston and the Valley and, and thought about moving. And it became clear that I, there just weren't very many people who were at least the, the firms that I was lucky enough to have opportunities at. They weren't really committed to doing things particularly differently. They wanted somebody younger to come in and help them continue to play the same playbook. And I was, firmly convinced from 10 years in the business that there was a better way to do early stage investing, seed stage investing in particular, that it involved a lot more commitment of resources and, and operating expertise to, to help companies. Um, and so that, that's really interesting. I'm going to jump in here. Yeah. Explain to me what the traditional way of doing it is and what you were looking to do. So, the traditional model, certainly if we go back 10 years, uh, 15 years, easy. The model is, you know, four white guys in their, you know, 40s and 50s mm -hmm. and a couple of junior people and a really nice office with a bunch of admin support and not a lot of hustle um and there's obviously tons of exceptions to that but but that was a way of operating that actually had been good enough to generate good returns uh for a few decades and at the time you could look around and see some people starting to do it pretty pretty differently and i think the standout examples there are without question 
Um, you know, first round capital has taken a very different approach since they started in the kind of mid aughts. Um, Andreessen showed up and frankly confused the hell out of everybody and pissed a lot of people off on Sand Hill Road by the way they were building capabilities and, and throwing money and resources at being better and being more impactful for their portfolio companies. Um, OpenView in Boston, uh, and the founder there, Scott Maxwell, has been a real mentor of mine and, and an advisor and an investor in our funds. Uh, he was super influential and he was building a, a growth stage firm with a whole team of operators and consultants and advisors to do real work in support of portfolio companies. And I thought that there was a riff on those models at Seed that we could that we could and should do something with. Um, so you know, it entails rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, getting involved, being part of the process rather than just doing it at a at a remove. You know, the biggest thing, Scarlett, is it takes it takes spending a lot of money. Okay. Um, and you know what Scott built, I don't even want to know what what the open view, what at the time they were calling open view labs team cost, but it was, it was multiple millions of dollars of payroll on an annual basis to make it work. And you just had to be willing to commit to that. And most firms weren't, most firms weren't willing to do it even a little bit. Um, and I had some, you know, I'm probably giving myself a little bit more credit than I deserve for some of this because I'm describing things that actually really came to life as my partner Ben Sun and I got together. Um, and Ben was was a venture back CEO turned angel investor who had been very creative about how he marshaled some resources and used his networks to support the companies that he was an angel investor in. Um, and when we got together and started talking about maybe doing something, it just became clear that that there were sparks there around we could we could build something different. Okay, so you and Ben founded Primary Ventures, and um, this was something where you did not think that you would move forward with this un unless or until you found the right person to, to work with. In finding Ben or in that search for someone like Ben, did you have a strong sense of what you wanted from the very start of it? Or was it more a case of, I'll know it when I see it, I'll, I'll, I'll know him or her when I meet him or her? Um, well, there's always at least a little bit of the latter, but you know, these things are like, they're like finding a spouse, a life partner. You may, you may have some characteristics that you're looking for, but then it's, it's the spark and the magic in the chemistry that really cements it. But I did have a, I actually wrote a, a blog post and was, and pushed it aggressively um, saying, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, I've got LPs from high peaks who wanted to support me in doing it. So there's going to be, um, there's going to be capital to invest. I don't want to do it alone. I want a partner and here's what I'm looking for. And there were, probably seven attributes I, I described. I, I won't be able to remember them all, but I know some of them were um, operating experience because I thought that was one of the biggest holes, despite the fact that I had run a company for a year that was limited experience, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but enough to, to, enough to know that it made me a much better investor. Even that one year just right. gave me a sense of perspective and empathy for what the person on the other side of the 
table from me uh, was going through. So I wanted an operator. I wanted somebody with investment experience um, because I didn't I didn't want to have to do the training. Mm -hmm. Maybe there would be some like Ben. Certainly, we spent a lot of time helping Ben learn what it means to be an institutional investor versus an angel investor. But I wanted somebody who had a feel and I could see had a nose for great opportunities. And Ben certainly did. Um, and, and part of that was because, you know, when you're going from one partner to two, that's an incredibly high stakes move. You're sort of betting the, betting the business on that. Mm -hmm. If you have two partners and you go to three, if the two partners are strong, you can, you can afford to be wrong over here, but I, I couldn't afford to take a great operator who may just not have a great nose for, for right. years. Um, so anyway, I, marriage analogy. yeah, exactly. So I, I literally had 125 coffee meetings <laughs> with people who reached out to me or got connected to me one way or another, uh, and a bunch of them I knew already, but a bunch of them I didn't. And so it was this like hypercharged networking exercise in the New York community. Um, but it was, you know, again, not like finding a life partner partner. Ben was the person that my mind just kept coming back to, just kept coming back to. And there was just a creativity and a drive and a sense of competitive spirit. And like, I had to ask him six times to get him to say yes. Um, but it was ultimately, you know, for him, it was, he loved his independence. But as we kept talking more and more, he realized that he was never going to be able to, to build what we've now built um, because of the resources, because of the just the dollars it would require. He wasn't going to be able to do that as an individual angel investor. We had to raise a fund and have management fee to, to enable this platform to yeah. be created. And you've now built uh, three funds. The first was $60 million. The second was $100 million, And you've raised a third fund, which is $150 million. Yeah. You talk about how Primary Ventures provides its portfolio companies with a lot more than just funding. You're not four white guys who are age 40 to 50 sitting in an office with some administrative staff just kind of sitting back and, and you know passively watching this develop. Talk a little bit about what your current team looks like and the support, the specific kinds of support that you provide your portfolio company. You, you mentioned how Ben is really creative and and comes up with resourceful solutions. What are some examples? So first off, in fairness to our, our most of our peers, that model of the four white guys is pretty dead at this okay. point. Um, I mean, certainly from a diversity standpoint, we got a long way to go, but we're, there's a lot more youth in the, in the business. There's a lot more gender diversity that we got a long way to go there. There's a lot more racial diversity. We've got a long way to go there, but it's, we've broken out of the old model and we're making, and I, I would say that most firms are trying to do something relatively um, impactful beyond the check. I don't think there's many who are as committed to it as we are. Mm -hmm. um, but but when we started and we, you know, we had the blank whiteboard and we thought about our experiences, investors and operators and talked to a bunch of the founders that we'd supported and, and we were effectively doing market research and, and product discovery work on, you know, what are the things that you most need? What are the things that would be most impactful? Uh, and without question, thing number one was 
talent. Every, every CEO, every founder who's never done it before becomes pretty quickly very surprised at how much of their time they need to spend hiring, recruiting, looking for candidates, screening and interviewing candidates, selling the one you want. Uh, right. It's an enormous time sink. And most of them, particularly first time founders, are rarely are they really well calibrated to what great is. And so again and again, I had seen people, you know, they're looking for a head of product and they find one who's better than any they've seen before. And they and they lunge to hire them, but they may it may just be that they've never seen an A. Mm -hmm. And so they hire a B. Um, and so we wanted to be impactful both around sourcing great candidates, helping to calibrate founders so that they have the right set of aspirations about um, who they should be hiring, helping to set organizational strategy and be intelligent about when you onboard those people and integrate them into the team, you maximize the likelihood of success. <clears throat> and so we built a whole capability around that anchored by uh, now Rebecca Price, who's an operating partner with us and, and has been a HR leader in the New York tech community for um, 15 years uh, and is just a total pro. And she could be the chief people officer of any tech company in New York right now if she wanted to probably. And she, yeah. just, she just wants to do something different. Um, so talent was the first place we started. Then um, we, we moved to what we call strategic finance, which is around uh, helping companies make sure they really, really understand their business models intricately and help them in the formation of those models when they're in the early stages, um, help them develop a culture where they're managing by metrics and KPIs and build a kind of data and, um, and metrics driven culture. Mm -hmm. um, and then provide a lot of support on downstream financings. And because we know that if you, if you're just set up for success with good, clean data and models that make sense uh, and that are easy for the Series A or Series B investors to digest and, and, and are designed to the ways that we know those people are looking for them to be, we just know that puts a lot of grease on the gears of those processes. Yeah. And so we have a 90% success rate of companies we back at seed succeeding in raising a Series A from an outside lead, which is a pretty remarkably high number by by venture industry standards. And then last, we added a, a capability around what we call um, our go-to-market function and market development functions. And that's led by uh, Cassie Young, who's a very experienced chief revenue officer. You know, she could go, she could be a CEO, she could be a COO, she could be a CRO at any number of places, but is similarly invigorated by the opportunity to do this across a range of companies and have uh, a broader level of impact. Gotcha, gotcha. Now your portfolio there is pretty diverse, it's pretty broad. Um, you focus on B2B companies, your partner Ben focuses on B2C companies. Why this split? Um, it comes from our experiences, you know, built, Ben built a, a consumer internet company as an operator and has just long been a student of those business models and, and that way of thinking. And he's, he's amazing at it. And then he became 
um, became a real e-commerce expert um, initially through he was you know one of the very first checks into into a company called Coupon, which just went public a couple of years ago. It's the sort of the Amazon of South Korea. It's now a I don't know seventy five billion dollar market cap company, and he talked the founder Bomb Kim out of into dropping out of Harvard Business School and was you know, Bomb's closest advisor through the early days and helping him figure out how to build a great, build a great e-commerce business. Uh Um, He met Bomb, you know, on the, on a basketball court in in New York City. Um, And so that set of experiences have just, you know, when you've seen a company go from nothing to now, Coupon's at $12 billion of revenue last year, you learn a lot of lessons along the way and you'd be crazy not to take advantage of those. Um, and then for me, I, somewhere along the way, I just, it became clear that I was much, much more interested in and better at thinking about um, that business to business selling motion and, and enterprise sales driven challenges. And really I love looking at kind of antiquated business processes and systems and thinking about how to use 21st century technologies to sort of rewrite those scripts and reimagine them to be more efficient and more impactful. Uh, and then it's really convenient for us to be, have a logical sort of sorting mechanism for op- opportunities when they come in the door. And I think founders prefer people who have a decent amount of pattern recognition around what they do. Okay, so let's talk about founders then and, and the pattern recognition there because Every VC firm and venture capital partner I speak with talks about investing in founders first. The idea can and will be tweaked and evolve along the way as market conditions change and as the environment changes, but the founder is someone irreplaceable. What are the one or two most important qualities that you look for in a founder? What's the quality that that founder needs to have for you to say, yeah, I'm I'm gonna bet on this person? So, there's a few things that we pay attention to, one of which is probably the most important, but but there's, you know, we think just sort of raw horsepower, the amount of twists and turns these companies take, you have to have a very, very nimble brain um, and be an incredible problem solver and, it, and horsepower just matters a lot. Once, <clears throat> once you get to scale and you're like clearly a train that's on the tracks, um, raw execution capabilities become way more important than like if you really can kind of crack the code on super tough intellectual problems. But when you're weaving through the early days, that horsepower matters a lot. Um, grit and, you know, it's not, it's not a play. You, you've got to have been knocked down several times in your life and gotten back up and dusted yourself off, or at least have, traits that demonstrate a likelihood uh, to be good at that. Um, but then there, there's this thing that I think a lot of founders don't like to admit is as important as it is, but it's it's salesmanship and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to talk about the, the three unnatural sales that every early stage founder has to make. And if you're not incredibly good at painting a picture of what you're building and why it's important and why it's going to be successful. Um, 
you will fail at all three of these essential sales. So number one is you've got to sell me or one of my peers on parting with capital, precious capital. We're only going to do so many deals a year. Um, and I know every time I wire money to a new investment, I know that there's a 25 to 50% chance that we're going to lose all of our money. And so when I know systematically that we're going to lose that frequently, you gotta be really good at convincing me to get the, get the checkbook out. Um, and the better you are, the more success you'll have over time raising money, the less time you'll have to spend raising money and the less dilution you'll take over time. Number two is back to that recruiting bit, um, selling talent, because everybody you recruit into, uh, you know, if, if there's two co-founders and you're trying to hire your first salesperson, your first product person, whatever it is, you know, that any good salesperson that you want to bring into your company at that stage has a good job and, or access to a lot of good jobs. And as a salesperson is going to be able to make a lot of money wherever they are, if they're really good. And so if you're going to talk that person into leaving and coming to join you, unproven, super risky, likely to fail, um, you know, when that salesperson calls her mom or dad and says, I'm doing this new thing, mom and dad are like, that's crazy. You've got a great job. Why are you leaving? Um, so that's a hugely difficult and important sell that makes the difference between building a team of B players and building a team of A players. Um, and then the last one, if you're in a, in a B2B company, is selling customers. Mm -hmm. And particularly in an enterprise sales environment, I, I try to drill into founders' heads again and again that you need to realize you're not selling just a product to a business with a problem. You're selling a solution to a human being with a job. And that human being with a job, pretty good chance he or she has a spouse, children, a mortgage, college debt, whatever it is. And if they make a bet on you and your solution, and it's a highly important, high stakes enterprise process changing technology or something, if that bet is wrong, they might lose that job. Mm -hmm and then they got to pay the mortgage and then they got to pay kids college tuition or whatever and so and you're a company that's probably going to be out of business within the next couple like at the earliest stages like you're probably going to fail so to evangelize and storytell and sell your way past that you better be pretty special because it's very very rare that the product itself is so obviously game-changing that people are going to like lunge at it and be desperate to buy it. Well said. Okay. So the stakes are extremely high here and you have to have that, that person, the right person to be able to sell to all these different constituents. Um, we're obviously trying to broaden things out from just the, the model from 10, 15 years ago, where it's for 40 to 50 year old white guys. And we're looking for more diverse founders. We're looking for more diverse ideas. And diverse founders don't always have the same traditional background that um, the 40 to 50 year old guys are looking for. They don't work at a cons as a consultant for a couple of years, go to business school and, and be released onto the world with their networks intact. They have different networks. Um, how do you, is the burden on the founder to 
acquire the qualities of a traditional background or is a burden on the investors, someone like you, to, to find these founders with different qualifications, with different backgrounds? Um, there's elements of both, although I would not say the burden is on the founder to acquire a traditional sort of check the box background, because I think that's, it's both inappropriate and like wildly limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you want to be a successful investor, and if you want to build a portfolio that's representative of the population that we're, that we're serving and and a part of in New York City, um, which is the most diverse, most most broadly diverse city in the country, um, you have to get creative about it. And and there's opportunity in doing it, because if you assume that most people aren't doing an incredible job of it, um, then if you're accessing deals by being creative about how you search for <clears throat> for a broader, more diverse group of founders, then you're going to find some things that are going to be, you know, you're not going to be competing with 10 other people to find. Um, and so that's a place we've been spending a bunch of time and effort on. Uh, it's it's hard because our networks, our networks are our networks. I happen to be one of those 40 to 50 year old white guys. Um, with like traditional-ish background. Um, but we're doing a couple things. Like we've we've launched something called the New York City Founders Guide, um, which you can find from our website very easily, or it's nycfoundersguide.com. Um, and that's creating a collection of tools for the earliest stage founders to just help them to map out and understand the New York City ecosystem and understand where there are resources, you know, if they're just getting started and looking for the right law firm or the right mm-hmm. advisors or who are the angel networks, who are all the seed investors that you might want to talk to. And we're just creating a library of those things and building over time, we'll add more and more assets to that so that somebody who doesn't come from a place where they're networked to all the right people who can give them those answers, we want there to be a place to go. and that's something we're happy to do as a contribution to the community because we think it matters and it helps. Um, But we presume that on the margin, somebody who finds critical resources there and views that resource as valuable to them, um, we hope they're unlikely to then go and start a process to raise their their first institutional capital and and not give us a call. We've also launched, uh, we'll announce shortly our first class of what we call the the, um, New York City Founders Fellowship. And that's a program where we're trying to find people who are not in the traditional startup ecosystem, but people who are in working in industry or elsewhere who don't, who, who aren't already wired in this community for the most part and creating actually a program with a curriculum to help um, a class of, of, I think our first class is 15 people, um, come through a six month program where we're using our network to, to help them to get educated on what it means to become a founder. These aren't people who are going to start something tomorrow, but they're starting to think about it. And we want to help them build the skills and build the networks and build the connectivity so that when they are finally, hopefully ready to take that leap, they, they do it from a stronger footing. 
and this is all based in New York City. And I, I keep coming back to this idea of New York City because it feels kind of quaint that um, in, in the current moment to be talking about something that's so geographically focused when we're all discussing the future of work and how perhaps people, talent, ideas don't need to be limited to a certain area, that people can move all over the country. And the idea that perhaps once this pandemic ends, that'll still be the case. How's your thinking about geographic focus shifted since the pandemic has accelerated this, this move towards remote work? So um, for both Ben and myself, this is the, the third time in our careers that you know the death of New York City as the center of many things has been predicted. I'm pretty sure a third time's not gonna be the charm this time. Um, you know, certainly 9-11, it did leave, lead to a temporary exodus from some subset of the population who were worried about safety. Uh, it also, you know, anybody who was around at the time can remember the conversations about who is ever going to sign a lease on a, on a building, you know, on a floor in the building above the 50th floor. Nobody would want to be that high again, right? Nobody's ever going to build a big skyscraper in New York City again, right? It turns out like the six tallest buildings in New York or something have all been built since 9-11. And uh, last I checked, you know, the Bank of America Tower didn't have a hard time leasing out those top floors. Um, so, you know, what we when we're educating our investors, which include, you know, foreign sovereign wealth funds and university endowments in other parts of the country and foundations in the West Coast and, and whatnot, and, and people who are trying to understand why New York matters and has legs as a tech ecosystem, the things we say again and again are um, the diversity here is a powerful draw for incredible talent. And there's just a whole bunch of people in the country and in the world at large for whom living in New York City is a pilgrimage. It's a it's a thing they want to do in their lives, whether or not they're convinced they want to do it for their entire lives. Uh, and so you have this steady inflow of wildly diverse and super interesting talent. Um, but then I think the most critical key is the base of other industries that we have here. So you know, Seattle or San Francisco to pick on some sort of tech market peers on the West Coast, both of those markets are largely about technology, mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco certainly. And so when there's a hiccup in the tech environment, that's a much bigger shock to the system in the Bay Area than it is here. And particularly for the B2B companies that I invest in, um, New York offers utterly unparalleled access to customers as compared to any other market in the in the US certainly and, and probably in the world um, outside of maybe like Shanghai and Beijing if if you're focused on that market. Um, and so if you're going to build a company that's selling into the financial services industry or selling into the media or advertising industry the real estate industry or the pharmaceutical industry or the consumer back packaged good industry or on and on and on like think of the think of the industries that are, are either headquartered truly headquartered in new york like 
like financial services and advertising or have huge um, centers of gravity here within at least within 50 miles or so, which would pick up pharma and many others. Uh, would you rather be down the street from your customers and your prospects when we get back to an IRL world? Mm -hmm. Or would you rather be trying to sell to those financial services customers from Austin, Texas, or Miami? I, I'll take I'll take my salesperson who's in New York who can run around and see five in a day or get a text in the morning from a prospect who says, hey, let's talk today and just gets on a city bike and gets to, gets to that person in 10 minutes. That's a massive, massive advantage. And you can recruit talent out of those those industries as well to help you build your businesses. So I think that reality, you know, this pendulum is going to swing very far back towards where it was. But we'll have a bunch of companies too that have relatively more of their people distributed and mm -hmm. may have engineering centers in Pittsburgh or Buenos Aires or, you know, Uzbekistan, who knows? And, and it's all going to be a little easier to manage partially distributed organizations. All right. Brad, you have said it in the past, um, and this is a final question to you before we hand things off to Samantha Lee for closing remarks, um, that the 2008 financial crisis was the best thing that could have happened to the tech ecosystem in New York because it redistributed talent from finance to technology. As we look ahead to the end of the pandemic, where do you think that talent is going to come from, the redistributed talent? What industry is it going to come from? What, what part of New York is it going to come from? Boy, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know that it matters, Scarlett, in the way that it did after the financial crisis when we, what we were trying to do then or what was happening was we were kind of kickstarting mm. the ecosystem. The thing, that, the thing that matters now is that we are, without question, the second most important pillar geographically in the US, if not global, tech ecosystem and so we have a head of steam and we're we can feed off of ourselves now you know we're no longer just google of the big tech companies who's here but they're all here and they're all here in a big way and and they're all going to continue to be here in a big way and so there will be talent that will forever spin out of those places into into new york so i don't i don't think there's a I don't think there's any industry that's going to face a record or is facing a, a reckoning right now that will lead it uh, lead talent shifting like it did from Wall Street to tech 12 years ago. Um, but I don't think we need that anymore either. Brad Sperluga is co-founder and general partner of Primary Venture Partners. They're based in New York, and many of their success stories include household names that a lot of us know, Jet.com, for instance, which was later acquired by Walmart, as well as The Mirror, which was acquired by Lululemon. Some other investments they have in their portfolio include Latch, which is uh, merging with a SPAC right now uh, to go public, K-Health, and Electric. Brad, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.